I now invite you to open your Bibles to Romans, the fifth chapter. We will look this morning at verses 1 to 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. Through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, permit me to start with a little uh, history this morning. In the uh, fall of 1871... Henry Stanley walked into a town in Tanzania and there finding the man he was looking for, he uttered the famous words, Dr. Livingston, I presume. You remember the story, I trust, from your uh, high school history days. Uh, some six years earlier to that event, a British explorer, David Livingston, set out to find the source of the Nile. He gathered his provisions, those who would go with him, and disappeared into the African landscape. Years later, people wondered if he was even still alive. So Stanley uh, was a journalist, and he was sent to find Livingston or bring back proof of his demise. When he found Livingston in that African village, he urged him to return to London. But Livingston searched on, and he died some 18 months later. I don't believe he ever found the source of the Nile. Now, if you're an adventurous type, uh, you can appreciate his quest to find the source of what may be the longest uh, river in the world, a river that for thousands of years has watered much of the arid Sudan and the land of Egypt. If you started in the Nile Delta, where the great river empties into the Mediterranean Sea, you would see rich farmland nourished by the Nile waters. You would see the land of the pharaohs the land of Goshen, where the Israelites lived for 400 years. If you journeyed south, and you have to picture in your mind's eye uh, the continent of Africa, uh, the north uh, of that Egypt. Uh, so you're traveling south now into the heart of Africa. You're following the Nile. You're uh, walking along the west side of its banks. As you walk, you would continue to see the benefits of those waters until some 4,000 miles 
into the heart of Africa, you would come to Lake Victoria. That's in Uganda, the headwaters of the Nile. Now, when we come to a passage like this this morning in Romans 5, I think we can think of it much like a great river bringing forth the benefits of peace with God, access into this grace in which we stand, and hope. And this great river ends not pouring into a sea, but the Scripture says it pours into us. And as long as that river flows, it will bring, surely, those benefits to us. I use the word benefit, but I should really use the word blessing. That's Paul's word, uh, taken from the Old Testament in Romans 4, verse 6, where he says, So David pronounces a blessing upon the one to whom God reckons righteous apart from works. And so benefits, is, or excuse me, blessings is really a preferred word here because we're talking about the blessings to the one who has been justified by Christ and faith in Him. So what I would like to do this morning is to start with the blessings of this river of grace and then to trace our way back to the source, much like Livingston looking for the source of the Nile. So, the first of the blessings, peace with God. Think about that. What does it mean to have peace with God? Well, it means nothing less than we are no longer at war with God. Robert Haldane, a Scottish theologian from an earlier era, says this, for Paul to say we have peace with God shows that all men, until they are justified, are at war with God and that he is at war with them. But when they are justified by faith, the wrath of God, which abided on those who believe not in his Son, is turned away, and they cease to be enemies. So peace with God means that we enter into the fullness of Isaiah's words. Isaiah 40, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. To be at peace with God means that we have accepted the terms of peace to end a war that we could not win. Though the context is different, I think of Jesus' words about the cost of discipleship in Luke chapter 14, verses 31 to 32. There Jesus says, What king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms 
of peace. So what are the terms of peace with God? It begins with total surrender. I stop my striving against God. I don't plead my cause with Him to gain a negotiated peace. I say I am guilty. I have been your enemy, fighting a war I cannot win. What must I do to be at peace with you? And here's the divine answer. Only look upon my son and believe upon him and what he has done for you. And we will then be at peace forevermore. So to be at peace with God means that the warfare has ended between us and the wrath and the enmity that stood between us has been replaced by love. Again, from Robert Haldane, he says, there is no middle place for the creature between the love and the wrath of God. To Haldane's point, you are never in a neutral relationship with God. It's either war and wrath or peace and love and that on both sides. Peace with God then means reconciliation on both sides. As for God, His wrath has been propitiated. That's a theological term, but it's a biblical term too. It's found in Romans. It means that God's judgment against us has been satisfied by His Son's blood shed on our behalf, leaving only His love for us. You'll see this uh, further on in Romans chapter 5 where Paul says God's love uh, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us in, in Romans 5 verses 8 to 9. But God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Well, all that is on God's side. As for us, the enmity that we held against God, and yes, we held enmity against Him. It was displayed in our ungodliness. Romans uh, chapter 1 Paul talks about ungodliness, our ungodliness. That ungodliness is irreverence towards God. It is a disregard for God. All that has been replaced by a love that returns the love of God to us. By love, I mean a faithful commitment to God. A relationship where we seek after God, where formerly we sought Him not. Where we seek to honor and glorify Him, where we formerly did not. Where we fear Him in reverence and awe, where formerly there was no fear of God before our eyes.
Having peace with God then means that the old warfare has ceased and been forever and eternally replaced by love. A love that cannot be broken. This love, I think, is beautifully and poetically described in the Song of Solomon. Towards the very end of that that song, um, throughout which most of the song is talking about specific love, a love for a man, for a woman, and the return love. But at the very end, there's this more general description of what love really is. Love is said to be as strong as death. Its flashes are the very flame of the Lord, and many waters cannot quench it. This is the strong and the eternal love that God has for us. Or in the words of Paul from Romans chapter 8, verse 39, there is nothing, nothing in all creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that love, that eternal love for us is infinite and eternal and unchanging. Our love back to God is changing, but it's growing and it's developing in its depth and its strength and its intensity. And it too will blossom fully in the age to come to a love that can never be quenched. Uh, The idea of peace with God is not uh, simply a New Testament idea. It is an Old Testament idea as well. The Old Testament word for peace is what? Shalom, right? I think it's significant that the first use of the word shalom in the Old Testament is tied to a person being justified before God. Genesis chapter 15. We're told that Abram believed the Lord and he counted it unto him as righteousness. That is, Abraham was justified by faith. And then a few short verses later, we read, As for you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace and shalom, and you will be buried at a good old age. Well, in the Septuagint, the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament, The Greek word used for shalom is the word that Paul uses for peace with God in Romans 5. A couple more verses out of many. I mean, the whole Bible is full of uh, verses dealing with uh, peace, but uh, significantly perhaps in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, upon him the servant of God, the Messiah, was the chastisement that brought us peace. So the Old Testament looked forward to that 
peacemaker, Christ. In the New Testament, on Christ's last night with his disciples, and he says to them, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I think that's a remarkable statement. Jesus said to his disciples that he was giving them peace and then he went out the next day and secured the very peace that he was going to bequeath to them. And so as the justified ones, we have been bequeathed and given peace from the Prince of Peace. This peace with God through Jesus Christ is the first of the blessings flowing from the river of grace. The second blessing is access. Um, I think Ronnie, reading uh, the New American Standard, used introduction. But I, I, I like the word access. Uh, through Christ, we have also obtained access into this grace in which we stand. This is access to a place where before we were barred from entering. It's access to the presence of a king. And it's access to a new kind of relationship with the king. For me, I see this um, access into grace framed by three scenes or pictures from the Old Testament. Uh, the first Old Testament scene is the temple of the Lord where separation and denied access was a legal requirement imposed by the Lord of the temple. Remember just last week, Phil's uh, message from Acts and that uh, denied access uh, to the temple to foreigners and to those who were... Uh, physically disfigured, all represented by the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that? Well, there's more to the separation between God and mankind within the temple. Foreigners could not approach closer than the court of the Gentiles. Females no closer than the court of the women. And men no closer than the great veil which separated all from the most holy place within the temple. Access to this last place was forbidden except for once a year, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest could go behind the veil to sprinkle the blood of the Lamb on the mercy seat. That's the first of the Old Testament scenes or backdrop to this denied access. The, the second Old Testament scene I would give you is from the book of Esther. And you might turn to Esther chapter 4, and we'll look at this together. As you're turning there, you'll remember... Mordecai telling Esther 
to go before the Persian king to beg his favor and to plead on her people, on behalf of her people. But remember, too, Esther's concern about the law regarding access to the king. This is in Esther chapter 4, verse 11. She says to Mordecai, hey, understand what you're asking of me. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except to the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king. So to go there was to put her life in jeopardy because, again, this legal uh, decree denying access only except in, upon invitation or, if not invited, an act of mercy. Esther decides to go to the king with this thought. I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So she put on her royal robes, this is in chapter 5, and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, and while the king was sitting on his royal throne, and when the king saw Queen Esther, she won favor in his sight, and he held out his golden scepter that was in his hand, and Esther approached the king and touched the tip of the scepter. She was denied access by law, again, except upon invitation. She goes, and in mercy, she is not killed. She finds favor with the king. In both of these Old Testament scenes, there is no free access to the most holy place of the Lord or access to the king. Access may be granted, but it's only a temporary access. As soon as the purpose for which access is given, uh, the attendant leaves again to be denied access until another occasion. Yet, through Christ, we now have unhindered access to God the Father and to God's royal throne and to the most holy place. On the day that Christ offered himself for sinners, the Father tore the temple veil from top to bottom. And as the writer to the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 10 says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So let us draw near, not in the way that Esther drew near to the king with trepidation and concern for her life. But let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith that we have obtained access into this grace in which we stand. Now, the third Old Testament scene that I would offer for your thoughts uh, regarding denied access is the oldest of the scenes. The access denied to fallen humanity to return back to the Garden of Eden. 
This denied access is vividly portrayed in Genesis in the picture of the Lord driving out Adam and Eve away from the garden and then to deny access, stationing the cherub with the flaming sword. Yet, on the cross, Christ let that sword fall upon himself. And falling upon Christ, that sword is broken and those flames extinguished so that we might return to the garden to fellowship with him. Not conditioned upon keeping the law as it was for Adam and Eve, but in a new relationship founded upon and secured by grace. This access to grace is the second blessing of this river. The third blessing of the river is hope. The hope of the glory of God. J.B. Phillips in his um, rendering of the New Testament expresses this hope as the happy certainty of glorious things God has for us in the future. The happy certainty of the glorious things God has for us in the future. That is the first the future hope that we have. Uh, later in Romans, in chapter 8, Paul will say it like this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. That is a future hope of glory. What that glory will be like, I'll leave you to ponder, but I promise you this. Whatever you can conceive of, the reality of that glory will far exceed your thoughts and your wildest imaginations. For eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. While all of that is future, there is a second hope that's not connected directly with the future glory, but it's connected with present suffering and tribulation. I think this is a marvelous text for our time and days in which people are uh, living through a time of intensified suffering and tribulation. I think especially of the reports that we have been able to read uh, from Yupoki 
Our missionary friend in the Congo, he writes not only of the coronavirus spreading disease and death, but he's giving us reports of ruthless attacks by lawless men who are burning down houses and killing livestock and people. (laughs) By comparison, I suffer very little. But I know, I know there are those here who are separated from loved ones. I know of people who have loved ones in nursing homes. They can't see them, and they grieve. Our own dear friend, Cherry Hope, could not go to see and be with her brother because of the coronavirus, and he was in a, a, a nursing home. He died there recently, and she could not be with him. Think of the grief. There's been loss of employment, furloughs, upheaval in financial markets, social and economic disruptions, and it seems like in some ways the church is in places the special targets of this lockdown madness. I know you've experienced some of this in some measure. Maybe you're suffering. Well, our text this morning helps us think about what is happening to us in these days or in any times of tribulation and how to put it all in perspective. First, note the progression. Suffering leads to hope, but through a process. Suffering produces, in some of your translations, patience or patient endurance. Patient endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. Well, how does suffering produce patience? That's the King James word translation. Perseverance or endurance are the words in other translations. How does it do that? Well, I think there may be hints at the process. Um, I'd offer for your consideration uh, Psalm 31. In fact, let's turn there. Uh, Psalm, excuse me, 131. A song of ascents. It's for the pilgrim, a pilgrim psalm. We are pilgrims through this weary land. It's a psalm written by David. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Think about <laughs> these times in which we live, all the things that we can't understand as, as Ronnie prayed. We don't understand. They're just too great for us. The problems are too great for anyone to solve, I believe, save for Christ. They're just too great for us. We know the Lord is not caught unaware. He's not perplexed. He understands. 
I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Well, you know, you ask, why the winged child? Why would a king say, I have calmed my soul in the midst of these things that are too high for me to understand, like a weaned child? Well, we've had a marvelous illustration this morning um, by one of our congregants. (laughs) The unweaned child will let his or her mother know in no uncertain terms, I'm in distress I'm hungry, feed me. But not so the weaned child. Because the weaned child has learned, I don't need to cry out like that because my mother knows my need and will satisfy my hunger in due times. That's the picture of the weaned child who can wait patiently and endure whatever hunger pains until the mother provides what is needful. I think we have two other keys to understanding this passage in Romans. Uh, The first is in um, Romans chapter 2, verse 6. God will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience in well-doing Seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. Again, notice the word patience in well-doing. The second uh, hint and help is from Romans 12, verses 12 to 13. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You see, in adversity and suffering, we wait upon the Lord to use the words of Isaiah from Isaiah 40. But this waiting is not passive or idle. There is a continued seeking for the glory and the honor of the Lord, for His glory and honor. There is a continuance in prayer. We pray constantly. What do we pray for? For God to support us during this adversity, whatever it may be, to relieve our anxious thoughts, to give us peace of mind. Uh, That's Philippians chapter 4, right? And to bring us out of our troubles as He may will and when He may will to do that. And as we pray about these things, we look toward others who may be in need and suffering, and we consider how we might help them and show hospitality to them. Do that, then you're not just hanging on in times of trials and tribulations, but you're becoming mature men and women of strength and character. Character that produces hope, not just hope in yourself, but as you are doing these things in the midst of your suffering and people are watching you, 
you're inspiring a, a, a measure of hope in them and you're encouraging them. Hope that the Lord will come to your aid and hope that your tribulations will soon be swallowed up in victory and eternal life. Paul says of this hope that you will never be ashamed for having it because God has guaranteed the promised outcome by the gift of the Holy Spirit and the pouring out of His love to you. What a blessing. These then are the uh, three great benefits in this passage of the river to all who by faith in Christ have been set free from the bondage of sin. But they are denied to all others. For them, there is no peace with God. There is no peace for the wicked, says Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 48. The warfare continues. There is no access to God in grace, only condemnation under the law. There is no hope in tribulation. You know what there is for uh, those who do not believe in Christ and have been justified? It's pointed out for us in Romans chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Only wrath and fury for those who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness and do evil. So, back to our thoughts about Stanley and Livingston. Again, if you trace along the western side of the Nile, you will ultimately come to uh, the headwaters uh, in Lake Victoria. I'm sure they know that Lake Victoria is the real headwater there. It could be some other place that they haven't found. <clears throat> but tracing backwards for us from hope to access into this grace in which we stand to peace with God, what do we find is the source of these blessings? Well, Paul ascribes everything to our justification. But like looking for the source of the Nile, we're not yet at the headwaters because justification by faith is not the ultimate source of these things. They are rather, justification is part of the blessings that flow from the headwaters. So what then is the headwaters of our justification? It is nothing less than the love of God for us. God the Father. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. There is the great headwater from which flows our justification, our peace with God, access to grace, and the hope of glorious things to come. It's magnificent to me that in this text to think about it, the source of these blessings is God's love and that this love is poured into us so that our hearts will become springs of love and living waters. But like the quest for the source of the Nile, our quest for the source of our blessings here is not complete. Did you know that if you trace the Nile to find its source on the east side, you'll not end up at Lake Victoria. 
in Uganda because at a place called Khartoum, the Nile will become two rivers. Westward is the White Nile and Lake Victoria. And while Lake Victoria is considered the headwaters, it's not the major source of the waters in the Nile that flow into the delta and out to the sea. But trace the Nile eastward from Khartoum, and you'll be tracing the Blue Nile. And you'll end up not in Uganda, but in Ethiopia at Lake Tana. Again, though it's not the official headwaters, it is actually the primary source of the waters of the Nile River. So too, if you're thinking about the geography of our blessings and justification, if you trace that back, you'll come to a place called Golgotha. And you'll find there Two loves merging at the cross. The love of the Father and the love of the Son. Remember John's words about Jesus having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Do you see then the great assurance of this text? No matter where you are or what you are going through, if you have put your faith in Christ, you have been justified by his blood. All these blessings are assured to you. And that blessing of hope. You know, in the midst of trials and tribulations, you know the one thing you need most? hope that these trials will end. My suffering will be relieved. Because where there's no hope, there's despair. But where there is hope, there is an outlook on life that will carry you through. And here is a great Trinitarian text. Blessings that flow from the love of the Father. Blessings that flow from the love of the Son, and that are carried to us by the gift of the Holy Spirit that has poured the love of God into our hearts. Well, I trust that you will be encouraged uh, to ponder these great blessings upon you. If you are not of the justified ones, I offer to you a gospel. Come to the waters without cost and buy from him who gives freely and obtain the joy of the knowledge and the assurance of the blessings of this great book.